Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello, welcome back to Ivory Sea Trouble with Daly and Wallace. How are you both doing? <laughs> So we're in Brussels. Um, this is the sixth week now of this Russian invasion into Ukraine. So it's still um, the most important topic, of course, in, in the European Parliament. Uh, and we're at a kind of a different phase of the war now where we're talking about broader implications, um, other spin-offs as well that are, that are, that are happening um, mm. from the war. Um, let's talk a bit about that and, and maybe also about sanctions. There's a lot of talk again about ramping up further up sanctions against Russia, about further um, measures to take against Russia. Um, we're at that stage where most of the steps have been taken that were said would be taken. And now the EU is kind of looking at itself saying, what do we do next? So, Well, I mean, I suppose there's some very interesting things beginning to emerge. And I mean, it's tragic when you see it against the backdrop of the loss of life and destruction and uh, mass exodus of people out of Ukraine. But it seems that elements in the European Parliament, and I suppose representing the political elite, seem to be kind of hunkering down, looking forward to the long haul and what they can get out of it. Like, I mean, it really struck me today. I mean, the week started with security and defence meetings on Ukraine, which were held in camera, which means in private. And... I said to your man, well, I know now why this was in private. Uh, I said, because all it was talking about was money, balance sheets, top-ups. Member states can apply for this in arms. They can get this military hardware. They can get they can apply for reimbursements, top-ups. It was just really vile, crude capitalism uh, salivating over the prospects of war. And one of the representatives even went to say, he said, this is it, you see, he said... We're working with NATO, but the EU has the money. This is the strength of the European Union. We have the money to purchase and we're in the market. And it was just really shocking. And it just shows how much the EU has been captured by the military industrial complex, who for a long time now behind the scenes have been feeding into the US and NATO rhetoric. They needed an enemy to sustain their industry. Uh, Russia phobia was the back of it. Now Putin's war has given them the excuse to accelerate it. And my God, are they accelerating? I mean, that was the start of the week in terms of security and defence. And then today we were in at the Transport Committee Exact same thing. Instead of discussing sustainable transport against the backdrop of a climate emergency, we were discussing military mobility and the need now to escalate the amount of money being spent on military mobility so that we can have... I mean, I, I was laughing at your man. I was kind of going, so we need to make people feel safer. I said, like, do you think the idea now of 
railways in Europe being capable of transiting tanks across borders is going to make people safe. I said, well, that doesn't make me feel uh, safe, I can tell you, because if we were getting into that star- scenario anyway, we're talking about a really serious state of affairs, I said. But I'd feel a lot safer if we were putting the money into getting people onto the railways and having sustainable transport and trying to save the pl- planet rather than emboldening the military, which are having a huge impact on climate change, not to mind the destruction of humanity. So... You can see it's really been, I don't know if you found the same, Mick, but to me, it's becoming clear now what an opportunity this war is for all of the lobbyists who have been rooted here. And it's nearly like all their homework and their swatting has just come good for the leaving cert, that they're raking it in now uh, with the chance that they have. It's a it's a buyer's market, isn't it? Yeah, look, it is. Uh, it's pretty worrying. Um there's so many dimensions to it, and the war is terrible. And innocent people continue to die, and uh, it's just so tragic. And but the our response to it uh, is also tragic. And um, the sanctions, it was like as if they were almost waiting for the opportunity. And uh, I, I was I was listening to. Um, an American economist uh, talking about it this week, um, uh, and a very well-known guy, and uh, he was saying that he says from from his perspective in America, he says that the EU foreign policy has basically been turned over to NATO, and he said mm-hmm. so instead of European voters and politicians making their own policy, he says they're relinquishing European foreign policy to NATO, which is really an arm of the U.S. arms industry. People should understand that the value, the value of shares in Lockheed Martin and uh, the other uh, f- four other major arms manufacturers in America have gone up. Their shares have gone up 20% in a month. These are the people that are going to make the most money out of it. Now, look at some people are saying, oh, I mean, the, the amount of MEPs in here clamoring for more and more sanctions against Russia. And I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but a commissioner, uh, when I queried a commissioner uh, in another in-camera meeting, most of the meetings are in-camera these days, uh, when I queried the commissioner and said, uh, are, are the, do you expect the sanctions to stop the war? Do you think it'll make the Russians uh, pull back their troops and uh, go back to Russia? Oh, she says, no, no, she says, no, we don't expect that. But that, that's what we were told first. Right? But she says, no, we, said we want to weaken the Russian economy. Oh, yeah? You want to weaken the Russian economy? Okay, right. But I mean, the sanctions are going to have a terrible impact on the Russian people in general. They're not going to have a terrible impact on the people working in the Kremlin. They're going to have a terrible impact also on people right across Europe. I was The, the, the British are expecting inflation this year to reach a minimum of 8%. 8%? Right? Uh, can you see governments uh, pushing up uh, social, social benefits and social uh, payments of all sorts put up by 8%? It won't happen. They might go two or three and people will be at minus five or six. There's going to be a terrible impact on the living standards of European people. And we're introducing sanctions that are punishing ourselves. And so, okay, it's designed to destroy the Russian economy. And I've said it a few times, right? But I mean, you want to be careful what you wish for. And Russia 
has the second largest nuclear arsenal on the planet after America. Do we want a failed state on our eastern border with the second largest nuclear stock on the planet? Think about it. What will that do for stability in Europe? What's that going to do for peace? Well, I mean, apart from that, I mean, destroying an economy is not a legitimate, lawful goal in anybody's book, like, you know, because it does mean impoverishing the people who live there. But, I mean, I thought the point you made about the economist guy was an interesting one. I mean, everything has been stood on its head in this war. I mean... This morning, MEPs were clamouring, talking, we need our strategic autonomy. We need to be independent. But, I mean, you're totally right. The actual consequence of this war now is that the European Union has gone, just rolled over to the US. They are now officially, we might have always talked about them being a puppet of the US, but they are making no pretense about it. I mean, think about it. I'm in the transport committee of the European Union, dealing with shipping, with rail, with, you know... uh, Everything, uh, aviation, all of the challenges that we place for workers after the back of the pandemic, all of the environmental challenges. And all we're talking about is militarism. And in that context, making provision for PESCO projects, which now include the US. So the transport project in use, because your woman says we have to facilitate our transatlantic friends, many of whose whose troops are based across our countries and many more of them are being based there now. We have to accommodate that situation like and she's kind of going and we have a number of projects ready for this. Now Irish people should wake up to that because the Irish government signed up to PESCO and the United States and she said and we're working very very closely now with NATO and PESCO and the EU now is just a puppet of NATO, where the war drums are banging. All the MEPs could say at the meeting today was, look, you're only spending 1.5 billion on military mobility. This is a disgrace. We need more. We need more. We need more. And that's the song that's going on. Every That was the same in security and defence. OK, we're giving the Ukrainians a billion. Can we not give them aeroplanes, this one says? I mean, I think it's a disgrace, she says, that uh, the NATO aren't allowing a no-fly zone. Can we give aeroplanes to, to allow uh, the Ukrainians to do it for themselves? I mean, these people are just... And the excuse that we were given as to why they couldn't is because the planes that, uh, that they could give them... Uh, the Ukrainians don't have the experience to fly them because their main experience on flying uh, warplanes are of a Russian make and which they're unlikely to get at the moment mm. bar unless, unless they get a lot of rubles uh, the Russians seem to be pretty keen on getting rubles at the moment mm. but I mean the idea that this was almost an excuse uh, as a, a reason as to why we're not, give, not giving them planes but in actual fact and I'm at, I'm at the raising the, the, the point three times uh, since the war started but f- pumping money pump, pumping guns and arms into a live war situation is against the Treaty of Europe it's against our own treaties, but they're ignoring it. Mm. They've decided to ignore their own rules. And, it's, and just, uh, I wanted to raise one other point that the same economist uh, raised. Right? And he said that, he says, American strategy of neoliberalism, he says, is about fighting against countries that reject privatisation and financialization of their economy, and specifically financialization under the control of US banks, US private capital, and allied satellite banks and capital from countries like England, France, and Germany. I mean, it's like uh, we are 
we're, we're facilitating a huge shift. I mean, do, do you remember was the, the, the US introduced sanctions and then so did the Europeans in 2014 after the Russians taking Crimea, right? Uh, Lithuania used to sell a huge amount of cheese to Russia. So that was sanctioned, right? And so the Lithuania didn't sell cheese to Russia anymore. The Russians started making their own cheese. They've actually become self-sufficient in cheese, right? And, but what's happening now with these sanctions, more than anything, apart from forcing... When, when you sanction a country, you put huge pressure on them to become self-sufficient, more self-sufficient than they are, so that they're less dependent on imports, right? But also what they're doing is you're driving Russia and China closer. Hmm. And we're going to see a shift that we haven't seen before in our lifetime, where you're going to have uh, the likes of China and Russia, Iran, Syria, uh, possibly some of the Gulf states. And I would say, if you notice how friendly India have been to Russia since the war started, right? Th these countries make up half the world's population, right? And this is a huge shift. And it might be fine for the Americans, but in my opinion, it will not be beneficial to the citizens of Europe. We are going to pay a heavy price for this. Yeah, and I mean, Russia is using its gas supplies to be friendly to India, to give them good deals, to encourage that trading. And if you think about it, that's what countries should do friendly relations that are in the benefit of both sides and Europe has just cut its nose off in this scenario it's the people of Europe and the people of Russia who are going to feel the brunt of the sanctions now it'll be interesting to see what happens with the gas supplies I mean I think as we speak I think tomorrow was the deadline for whether uh, the West is going to be buying its uh, gas in rubles or not yeah. the, the deadline that Putin has put down is tomorrow uh, if they don't I mean What's going to happen I next? I think he's decided not to insist on the rubles, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. seemingly there's been talks between okay. Putin and Schultz, and mm. that uh, Putin is rolling back on it a bit, and uh, because he's he's trying to keep links uh, with Germany opened, and uh, obviously there's been people complaining about the fact that Russia and Germany are even talking. I mean, of course they should be talking. But I mean, I'm still shocked at the lack of effort at serious negotiations that the big players could be playing. America has shown zero interest in peace talks. Uh, China doesn't seem to be going to the, that, that space either, uh, which is disappointing. And But France and Germany uh, are are the ones, I think, that have to play a, a major role now if others won't do that. Mm -hmm. At the moment, Turkey seems to be the the, the main player uh, trying to get the two of them together, and there's talks going on in Istanbul, but uh, whether they're getting anywhere or not, I, I don't know. Well, I think yeah. this, it's very hard to get an accurate picture of what's going on both in terms of progress and the war. It depends on the sources you read. Some people say, oh, the Russians have overstretched themselves. They're in trouble. They're pulling back a bit. They don't know what to do. Um, the others are saying, no, 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 they're firmly in control. It's very hard to know. And similarly with the peace talks, I mean, you definitely get the sense that when you read about the account of what's happened at the talks, it's seen, and both sides will be saying, yes, progress seemed to be made. I mean, there was discussion around the need for Ukraine to be neutral. It seemed that both sides were willing to accept that, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, in the issue of Crimea and some sort of, of sort of um, 
referenda or some sort of um, democratic way of establishing what was going to be done in the Donbass area. And there was progress made in all of them. And then there was talk about Russia pulling back a bit from some of the in good faith. And that was welcomed by the... And then the next thing we see... Zelensky popping up in one of his uh, TV little video games saying, oh, we don't trust the Russians. It's all gone ho And as the talks are going on, like Europe is just all the talks here aren't about how can we get people around the table? It's how can we how can we get more and more arms in? How can we get more military mobility? How can we do all these things that we wanted to do anyway? So it's very clear that the international community at the moment doesn't want peace. Mm. They're happy for this war to continue up to a certain point. Now, that is very dangerous because if this continues and if there isn't a giving of talks and you have a continuation of isolating Russia and pushing them into that situation, well, then they can only go in one direction on this and that's to go in harder. And again, we see it's the people of Ukraine who are a pawn in this and you'd really wonder what is Zelensky playing at because his spokespeople in the peace talks seem to be competent enough they're making the right noises i don't know what what his game is at the moment to be honest no it's very hard to tell um what he's what he's doing or what he's what he's at um because it's 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 scary listening to him a lot of the time yeah. uh, some people a lot of people have really taken to him the media he's become the media darling uh, but if uh, I, I'd much rather see him make decisions that would spare the lives of more of his own citizens uh, something else that we had at CEDA this week um, at the Security and Defence Committee was the strategic compass and of course discussing the strategic compass uh, at this particular time is actually dangerous because we're committing money towards things going forward and we're doing so in a time when there is there's a lot of uh, hot heads in the room yeah. and there isn't an awful lot of uh, sanity there a, a lot of the time and I don't know what it, I mean we've talked about strategic compass before but it's really a kind of a, a sort of a, a map mapping out Europe's way forward in terms of its own security and defence and one of the first things that it says, the new strategic compass claims that we are showing an unprecedented resolve to restore peace in Europe. Hmm. Now, sadly, what's at the heart of the strategic compass is strengthening our ties with NATO, spending more money on arms. And I put it to the, to the, the guy from the European External Action Service. I said, come on, I said. I said, when you buy guns and arms and when you invest more in them, it leads to war, not peace. And I said, war is not the way forward for Russia. We, are, we completely uh, condemn the way they've gone about this with Ukraine. It's completely illegal and it's a disaster for so many lives. War is not the way forward for Europe either. But unfortunately, uh, if you look at the strategic compass, it's, it seems to be uh, an, an awful lot more about feeding the arms industry than it is about strengthening diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow um, we have the EU-China summit, right? So this is coming at an interesting time. Um, you were saying just earlier about how uh, China, in your own opinion, hasn't been doing a lot on Ukraine, but Ukraine seems to be one of the high things on the agenda for this. Um, and it's also been one year since China imposed certain sanctions on the European Parliament, on the H Human Rights Committee and on certain MEPs. 
and then there was counter because and as counter sanctions because the EU had its own sanctions on China. Um, I, I'd like to know what what you think would be a good outcome from this summit um, in the context of of Ukraine as one of the things on the agenda, and also just in terms of other things. Like I'm reading the statement here from the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee um, in the European Parliament about his hopes for this uh, summit. Um, and they say, we also remain firm on the need to continue and strengthen the dialogue on human rights issues with China. And we've seen a geopolitical European Union rise up firm and united in the defense of its fundamental values. So they're they're really posing this kind of contrast between one holding up a load of lovely human rights values and the other not. So what do you think would be the outcome in, in terms of those two areas? Well, I mean, uh, if there's human rights abuses in China, uh, I think, of course, we should be critical of them. The same as we should be critical of human rights abuses everywhere. Um, we're f- tripping over ourselves uh, about doing new deals with the Gulf monarchies. Uh, Saudi Arabia cut off the heads of 81 people a fortnight ago. They cut the heads off 81 people. And Europe doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Uh, they still don't seem to have a problem with the fact that, uh, according to the UN report, for just under 400,000 have been killed in Yemen and 16 million driven into extreme poverty by a Saudi-UAE-Qatar coalition with the support of Western governments. So if you're concerned about human rights, and we should be concerned about human rights, and it would be good if we had values that we could actually be proud of, but I'm sorry, but it's not true. Well, it'd be good if we started at home because the ironic thing is like... um that actually Europe within its own borders now, and David McAllister talked about Europe coming together strongly. One of the ironic things about the war is that Poland and Hungary and all these countries who have been found out to be violating human rights laws and their own, all that's forgotten now. Poland is the best country in class now because they are our buffer with Ukraine. They are the ones who are filtering. All of the arms going into Ukraine is coming through Poland. And we're being told that that's really great. We know our friends in Poland are doing a great job on that. They've nothing to say about Bulgaria. Uh, Actually, quite the opposite. They're up screaming and roaring because the new uh, European prosecutor's office tried to take a step against a corrupt oligarchic uh, prime minister, not in Iran, but in Bulgaria, inside in the uh, EU, you know. So it's complete double standard. So they can't talk about human rights anywhere. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the China thing. I see the Chinese don't know know themselves at the moment. There hasn't been a word of anti-Chinese rhetoric. Well, a few whispers, <laughs> a few, but not many in the normal run of things. So whether they're trying to lick up to them a bit, it's an, probably an not. An interesting development, though, I think in the last few weeks has been this the shift of, of uh, responsibility for bringing about peace to China within the European Union circles. So they're saying it's all actually down to China about what they can make Russia do. And mm. they do play a critical role. They're very <coughs> close neighbours and partners and very um, interconnected. And uh, Xi Jinping and Putin seem to have good relations. But what do you think about this um, shrugging of responsibility to one extent of of EU leaders well, saying I think it's true. It's like, I mean, China. in an ideal world, it should have been that China would have had. And, and in fairness, the Chinese behave differently. They operate culturally differently in terms of the fields of diplomacy and they like to do things quietly and behind the scenes. So we actually don't know what they're doing. I'd imagine that they are doing a fair bit. They probably are, as Mick said, seizing on the, the present situation to maybe boost the idea of an alternative alliance away from uh, the dollar. 
they're possibly doing that as well. But I, I'd say they're being quiet enough about it. But they, they should be playing a role, I think. Uh, ideally, the European Union should have been playing a role as well. But they're not doing it. Like, what are they doing to bring anybody to the table? Quite the opposite. Well, yeah. the... the, the um well, I would love to see the Chinese get involved because uh, I think that they could rein in Russia a bit. Uh, and it, I think they definitely have uh, the potential to be a positive player. But as you said, Claire, historically, the Chinese are not the interfering type. They haven't dropped a bomb on any country in 40 years. And the Americans have dropped bombs on on a country, every, one country or another, every day in the last forty years. Uh, so the Chinese don't have a policy of interfering. And while I was hoping that they would try and gather people around the table to talk some sense into this situation and stop uh, mm. people dying, and uh, for once, uh, I mean, I. I we we generally argue for people uh, not interfering in the affairs of other countries, and uh, I'm not saying that uh, China starts interfering in the affairs of other countries now, but uh, I would love to see them uh, exert some exert their influence, and they are a, a huge player now in the world, and uh, I would love to see them exert uh, their influence and get people around the table. I think they, yeah, yeah. they do have a role to play in diplomacy, and the, the reason why they, well, look, as you say, we don't know whether they've done it or not, and I'm sure they would be concerned at the fact that the Russian war has given NATO what it's wanted. I mean, for the first time now, Germany's going to spend $100 billion on transforming yeah. its, its military. This was a country that was never going to have a military again, so I'm sure they don't like this new, well, no, it's not new, but this even deeper closeness between the US and the EU and NATO in that regard. But at the same time, they obviously understand that Russia is feeling under threat as well and that they recognise, if you like, that the way in which the US and NATO were using Ukraine to gold Russia is something that, if you like, has been done with China as well. And they were probably fearful of that scenario too, so mm. we have to factor that in. As so well. yeah, that's your that's your your hopes for the the summit. Let's um move on and talk a little bit about sanctions because this is a big element of of um the war, um and the reaction. And of course, we've talked a lot about sanctions before. Um, in many episodes, um, we've talked about how it is uh, a tool for warfare. It's not this peaceful, <laughs> um, non-interference kind of way of approaching. Um. Or, or relations that, that some people like to paint it as. Um, but there's been a full a suite of, of sanctions placed against Russia right in the aftermath of uh, the invasion. This has been announced even months before when the build-up was happening. They were saying, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll cut you out of SWIFT, we'll slap all these sorts of sanctions. And the thing about these sanctions, we know they're quite different to what the EU has been saying in the past few years about the need for targeted sanctions, about how they've always been trying to qualify it to say that their sanctions are very specific, they're not hitting the population at large. These ones are completely about whacking the, the Russian economy and bringing down the whole the whole country, really. Um, it seems to be that the goal is to get some sort of um, internal discontent to kind of move things within Russia, although we know that's never actually happened ever in the history of sanctions being used ever. Um, and it's very sad that a huge um, amount of parliamentarians supported this kind of sanctions. So we've seen quite a, a shift already in terms of what kind of sanctions MEPs and, and politicians are supporting. But um, there's 144 million people in Russia. Um, they're basically all be impacted by 
sanctions of some sort. The whole middle class will probably have the rug pulled underneath them. People's pensions uh, will be devalued. The effect on the ruble will also be pretty huge. We've seen all sorts of companies and entities pulling out of Russia, jobs lost. Uh, there's lots of different things um, happening. But let's like well, let's talk a bit about that, Mick, um, because you've always been saying sanctions like this are not only ineffective, but they, they cause ma- massive amount of harm. And now the, the EU is trying to talk about additional sanctions or ramping it up in some shape or form. So what's going to happen there? Well, and, yeah, know. obviously, um, we, we've explained many, many times that sanctions hurt the ordinary people more than it hurts the people that we say we're targeting. And you can call them targeted sanctions if you like, but uh, the likes of the oligarchs and the, the main players in the Kremlin, if you think that their standard of living is going to be affected by the sanctions, then you're living in cuckoo land because they won't be. But if it, uh, will the lives of the ordinary Russians be affected by it? Absolutely. But as we've been pointing out, the lives of people in Europe are also going to be affected. And it was interesting yesterday, uh, or on, on Tuesday, there was a big meeting between the Germans and uh, some Russians, right? And uh, the uh, the head of uh, the Chemical Workers Union, who are big players in Germany, he he he, uh, he said, he, and I, I quote him: He says, "Exploding energy prices, but above all, a possible gas embargo, would hit, would hit energy intensive industry, the mother of the industrial network, so hard." He says in Germany, right? And he said that uh, he says if. If, for example, if the Russians turn off the gas in response to the European sanctions, now, and some people would be kind of wondering, well, why haven't they, <laughs> right? And he says, if uh, that happens, he says, Germany will see its major industries like steel, chemicals and paper shut down in weeks if it's left without gas, oil and coal from Russia, right? And hundreds of thousands will be laid off. Hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. So in Germany, in yeah. Germany alone, <laughs> in Germany alone, hundreds of thousands would be laid off if the Russians turn off the gas and oil supply. And you can keep saying, oh, we're sanctioning more, sanctioning more, sanctioning more. Well, as I said, listen, be careful what you wish for. Now, we, we had a very interesting uh, discussion at Environment uh, this morning as well, right? And the Commission were pointing out that, for example, that Russia and Ukraine supply 30% of the world's wheat. 30% of the world's wheat, right? So, I mean, we're going to see huge um, r- r- costs of uh, r- rising costs of food. Um, and aside from that, there's, there's, there's the amount of dependence in European industry on raw materials from Russia is striking. I mean, I, I wouldn't have dreamt that, that there was such a dependence there. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we keep talking about the fact that Russia only has a GDP uh, probably around the size of Italy, right? Uh, so it's not seen as a major player, uh, but they're a major player in terms of the supply of commodities that Europe needs. And uh, the people that are screaming... Uh, for more and more sanctions against the Russians. Well, the people that voted for them now uh, mightn't be so impressed if they lose their job because of it. Mm-hmm. And we've already, they are, they're already admitting that, okay, what are the sanctions doing? They're not stopping the war. So uh, are, are we going to destroy the Russian economy with sanctions and see 
our own citizens suffer uh, in that part. Well, that's the perspective. Like, that's the only outcome now, like, of these sanctions, because, as you said, Damien, they're not going to be... Uh, used to succeed in overthrowing the Russian government. And no one is even talking about that because they know it's absolutely ludicrous. It does seem to be sort of revenge um, and it doesn't help the Ukrainians at all. I mean, if you look back and the gas is a good example of it because you can see the sort of sinister forces at work because the consequence of shutting down our links with Russian gas has been to force Europe to do deals with the UAE and with the United States, who are the big winners out of this. So LNG is back on the market against an environmental catastrophe and a race against climate change, filthy methods of power, which they could not have dreamed of considering in Europe, given the, how unpopular they were, are now back in fashion as an alternative just to ostracising Russia. Now, how is that going to help anybody in Ukraine who's getting bombed at the moment? It certainly won't, but it will certainly affect the futures of future generations because the climate is going to pay a heavy price of that. It's just absolutely mental. And, and there's so you, many areas where the Americans are winning on this. Oh, yeah. I mean, but it's... it's um it's it's made in heaven for them. Mm. I mean, they don't know their look, and uh, it, it's 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 hard to listen to the Irish politicians at home, uh, a few MEPs in particular, mm. calling now for oh we must rethink LNG, oh we must rethink LNG. So now we're going we want to go back now to uh, bringing LNG frack gas uh, five thousand kilometres across the Atlantic from America, where the the sourcing of this frack gas is causing untold pollution and poisoning the water table for so many Americans. And we want that we want to encourage that now by building an LNG plant in the Shannon Estuary. What yeah. is wrong with this? So, I mean, talk about not letting a, a good crisis go to waste. So people are actually jumping on the bandwagon now, taking this opportunity to actually move towards LNG, forget about the Green Deal, forget about the challenges of the environment, mm. all because we want to destroy the Russian economy. Mm. And, and listen, just that ties nicely in as well with the discussion uh, this morning uh, at the Env Environment Committee with the Commission, right? Because I made the point to him that while... Uh, your average European spends about 10% of his disposable income on food. Uh, in Africa and West Asia, they spend 50% of their disposable income purchasing food. So obviously it's going to have, uh, if food prices mm. are going to have a massive impact on those people. Mm. Now, they'll have an impact on less well-off households in Ireland as well, but it isn't sanctions that are going to fix that. It's social policy that will protect these people uh, uh, in their hour of need so that they can actually have food on the table. But what, what's happening is uh, you have uh, big agri now in the name of food security arguing the origin that we roll back on the environmental aims of the European Green Deal because of food security. Now, I got the Commission to admit, well, are we, is there going to be a shortage of food in Europe? There actually isn't. But what there is going to be is terrible price hikes. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have, we're not going to have a supply issue. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a price issue, right? And the price issue has to be dealt with by member states' governments to protect their own citizens so that they are protected from the severity 
of the rise in prices uh, in food production. Now, we haven't even got around to mentioning fertiliser, but uh, it was also mentioned, and, and in fairness to the Commission, uh, there was a very interesting guy in, but he says, it's a lesson to us as well, he said, that we should be less dependent on inputs from other parts of the world. Well, so we've been saying that for years, <laughs> right? We, we don't want to be... Most of these trade deals are doing untold damage to farmers in Europe, especially smaller farmers, and in Ireland. They're doing untold damage as well to the countries that, uh, where they're coming from. And you have big conglomerates making the money on both sides, and you have the ordinary farmers on both sides suffering. Right? So we want to stop... Uh, the imports of all this stuff that, for example, we got into the discussion then about meat, right? Europe has to import feedstuff because we need it uh, for uh, meat production and we need it for dairy, right? Uh, so, in actual fact, this is exposing the fact that we are we have moved too much into the dairy end in particular and beef and that we haven't concentrated enough on being self-sufficient in food production that we need to live. And that's a massive problem. And uh, the Commission were actually pretty uh, good at exposing the fact that, uh, you know, we have to rethink where we're going. It's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's very sad. It doesn't matter what issue you look at now. You can see and begin to understand why they're not talking about peace, because the goal of the lobbyists that are embedded over here for decades, their their dreams are coming through. And all of the progress that's been made over the past period, be it environmentally or whatever, is being not even chipped away. It's been pulled away overnight by this. I mean, we see it as well in the area of data exchange, which is a huge issue. Privacy rights and uh, the surveillance that was was ongoing because of the way the US processed data and so on. The big court cases in the Court of Justice and then Ursula von der Leyen gets up with Joe Biden. The EU is just going to do a deal with the US to allow the mass transfer of data of EU citizens. And this is on the back of the war. Now, she obviously can't do that overnight. But what it does mean is they're trying to undo all of this privacy work that had been done over the past period and again it's coming in over the under the radar nobody's talking about it there is no scrutiny this is really scary stuff uh, and again it comes back to our point is if we had an independent media that actually did journalism um then some of this stuff would be analyzed a bit more and the dots would be joined because you know there's so many people losing particularly the Ukrainians first and foremost, but the ordinary citizens of Russia and Europe will as well. And for everybody who loses, it means there's a few fat guys up there who are winning. And my God, are they winning out of this? It's just not on. And it's their voice and their propaganda that's been heard in the media rather than the voice of reason and an alternative view. There's just a big period of undoing at the moment. And as you say, all this progress that we've made in Europe, um, is really just being undone and there's no reporting, as you say. There's None. really nothing. I haven't come across one thing looking at the food security issue in an, as a proper light and looking at the affordability crisis it's going to spark and how the wider crisis will go. And all of the campaigning and all of the activism that actually had to get us to yeah. that place in the first place, gone and their voices haven't been heard anywhere and that's been silenced yeah. as well. Anyway, then so next week we have the plenary session. Um, we have a resolution coming up on sanctions. 
And we also have a resolution coming up on repression in Russia. So two different ones. Now, the second one, I imagine, will be one that's very supportive of the protesters in, in Russia, and rightfully so. People who are going out in difficult um, contexts where, where the people are arrested for being in a group of two or or doing any sort of protesting, basically, there'll be a resolution supporting them, I imagine, and saying solidarity with you protesters. And at the same time, there'll be a resolution voted on sanctions and bumping up sanctions that tackle the whole Russian economy, which these people are part of the, the Russian economy. People, yeah. Now, these yeah. are people, they're not, they're obviously in small numbers out in the streets because of the situation there, but there's a lot of people in Russia who don't support the war there. Like the people, the way you go on about it now is that people in Russia are brainwashed and they all are there with their big Russian flags and saying this is a military operation. They're not all like this now, in fairness. So, um, there's it's a, a country like any other. There's a wide amount of opinions and well, variety. In the same of, way, like there isn't only one Ukraine going. You know, yeah. all of the parties that were banned by Zelensky, I'm sure, don't think that they have the same outlook for Ukraine than he has. Like yeah. you know, um, no, so uh, when you think but, of all those people, yeah. their their pensions being wiped, their jobs being lost. Oh like yeah, I mean, because just imagine. I mean, listen, uh, I, I I'd be very surprised if there was much support for the war in Russia, because I mean, war. Nobody wins only the arms industry. I mean, uh, it's a disaster for the people of Russia. And uh, I'd say the percentage that thinks that this is a good idea for Russia, by God, I'd say there's not many Russians think that. Mm. Well, I'd say they're probably like the victims of propaganda in the West, where all the people in Europe are supporting the war and arguing for its continuous with their new no-fly zones and all this. A lot of people in Russia have probably fallen for the same type of propaganda, but put from the other side. But talking about propaganda and news feeds, right? I mean, we've had the war in Yemen. And there's been a total clampdown on news, right? There's been so little information coming out of it. The West hasn't wanted to talk about it because it's it's supporting a genocide in it. We had Syria, where we had a war of lies coming uh, coming out about the fact that the Western countries were actually arming the jihadists to destroy the place, to destabilise the place, to get a, to bring about regime change. We now have a war where both sides are lying through their teeth. Mm. You couldn't believe a word the Russians are saying. You couldn't believe a word the Ukrainians are saying. You couldn't believe a word of what the mainstream media are saying because one of them is taking stuff from one yeah. side or the other. Mm. It is a war of lies. Mm. And we, we won't really know what happened on the, until, until it's long That's over. Yeah. That's true. And I mean, it's the other point. There is no one truth. Like, Do you know what I mean? there are probably bits of truth in all of those narratives but my truth might be different than yours it depends on your perspective and that's the whole thing about you know international relations and diplomacy it's about trying to understand the position from the other points of person's point of view and bringing people together but instead we have the ruling elite across the world further in division because there's money to be made from it which is just sick and while people so suffer I mean I've I, I seen, a, I seen a, a, an Irish journalist on Twitter uh, only this morning tweeting about this this um, this Ukrainian in some city uh, in Europe who said that he hadn't seen a Nazi uh, in 30 years but then we're seeing other videos where uh, the Azov battalion uh, are, are incredibly powerful and mm. there's people afraid of their lives people are getting punished as, uh, according to other information so listen we, where the truth lies is probably somewhere in between mm. well the moral of the story is uh, be attentive right now and watch this space this is a very dangerous time in terms of uh, rollbacks within Europe in terms of um, progress it's made in terms of making massive decisions such as sending arms to conflict areas in terms of 
budgets and military equipment and all sorts of things that are happening all at once. And we need some sort of um, vigilance here and we need people to be uh, informed on what's happening and what's being undone right now, because it's pretty scary. So. Yeah, and people should always remember yeah. that the people that die in war are not the people who actually decide to go to war. They're not the ones that are keeping the war going. And the people uh, clamouring to put more guns into Ukraine uh, on the European side at the moment are not the ones going to die in the war either. There's Ukrainians dying, innocent Ukrainians dying. There's uh, uh, there's military on both sides uh, dying in the war. Um, but unfortunately, if it won't be uh, Putin or any of his t- top buys that'll be dying either. Mm. It'll be foot there soldiers. There won't be any of the Egypt MEPs in here who no. are arguing for the more weapons as yeah. well. I mean, yeah. so what you have is uh, you have the less well-off uh, dying on battlefields uh, after at, at the expense of, of decisions being made by those uh, mm. who are sitting at home comfortable uh, in their homes. Yeah. Okay. That's it for this week. Um, next week we'll be in Strasbourg. Um, and yeah, that's it. Bye bye. Viva Good luck.